0: If you're ready to elevate your level of care and professional satisfaction, register today for the trusted DPC event that can help get you where you want to go. With three physician-led tracks focusing on starting a DPC practice, growing a DPC practice, and clinical expertise within a DPC practice, the Direct Primary Care Summit has content for anyone no matter where you are in your DPC journey. The DPC Summit is happening June 20th to 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Learn more and register today at dpcsummit.org. Direct primary care is an innovative alternative path to insurance-driven health care. Typically, patients pay their doctor a low monthly membership and, in return, build a lasting relationship with their doctor and have their doctor available at their fingertips.
1: Direct primary care is to me freedom for physicians and affordable accessible quality care for patients. It's that simple. I am Vance Lassie of Holton Direct Care and this is my DPC story.
0: Dr. Vance Lassie has lived and worked in the Holton community since 2007. He earned dual undergraduate degrees from the University of Kansas before attaining his M.D. from the University of Kansas School of Medicine. He served as chief resident of the Smoky Hill Family Medicine Residency Program in Salina, Kansas, where he received awards for teaching, writing, and the prestigious National AAFP Award for Excellence in Graduate Medical Education. Starting in 2007, Dr. Lassie practiced full-spectrum family medicine at Holton Community Hospital. Unsatisfied with the shortcomings of the third-party payer system and believing that it was the only way he could stay true to his career-long mantra, patients first, in 2016, Dr. Lassie left the traditional fee-for-service medical system and founded Holton Direct Care. Utilizing the direct primary care model, he is excited to offer unprecedented access, attention, time, and quality to his patients for less than a monthly cable or cell phone bill. Dr. Lassie has served on or chaired numerous boards, including the KDHE Newborn Screening Advisory Council, the Governor's Fitness Council, and the Kansas Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors. He is a founding member of the Direct Primary Care Alliance, where he serves as the Vice President on the Board of Directors. He is also a founding member of the Midwest DPC Alliance. He proudly serves as an assistant clinical professor for the University of Kansas School of Medicine, where he has been the recipient of numerous teaching awards, most recently in 2018, the AOA Volunteer Clinical Faculty Award. Dr. Lassie was born and raised on a farm in Peck, Kansas, and he and his wife Erin and their two children, Luke and Rebecca, call Holton home. His hobbies include carpentry and building renovation, enjoying the outdoors, shooting hoops with the kids, and spending time with his family in general. He proudly serves as an elder at the Holton First Baptist Church, and any time he has left, he enjoys playing the banjo poorly. His words, not mine. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lassie.
1: Thanks. It's good to be here. Really happy to be with you.
0: So it is exciting to talk with you, one, just because you're Dr. Van Slussie, and the other is because you are practicing in Holton, Kansas, in a rural population. And as a person who is living in a town of 4,000 people in Northern California, I love that I'm talking with a, another rural family practice doctor.
1: Awesome.
0: I wanted to start out with asking about the nine years that you were working at the Holton Community Hospital. You've shared during summits and presentations about your experience there, but in your uh, on your website, you specifically wrote that you were unsatisfied with the shortcomings of the third payer party system. And what did that look like to you at the time that you were still working at Holton Community Hospital?
1: I don't think it looked much different than it does for anybody. I mean, there's the rural nature of it, of being a small town hospital makes it, you know, there's different challenges that, you know, that we have out here that you don't have in the cities and stuff. But that wasn't it. It wasn't about the rural part of it. For that, it was, again, it was just the third party stuff. So uh, I felt like I didn't have any autonomy with regard to how to take care of my patients with the third party system. You always have Medicare, you know, or insurance companies telling you what you can and can't do, what you can and can't order, what medicines you can and can't use, and then not just nonstop paperwork. When I really wanted to be spending time with patients and forming relationships and doing what, quite honestly, I was called to do. I I love rural medicine. I was called to it at a really young age. I knew this is what I was going to do, which is nice because you know you always know where you're going. It's just take a step on the path, you know. And I've always been on it. And then I get into the system, and then the system is making me hate the thing that I felt called to do. I know a lot of people have heard me say that. And I I just think that's really sad. And so it was that kind of stuff, just nonstop paperwork, prior authorization, certificates of medical necessity, you know, coding for criminally sake, coding, man. I mean, those kinds of things were just all little straws that were just getting piled on my back. And and eventually, you know, the camel's back will break. I think, but see, I think it's fair to say that that, the, the rural nature of the practice compounded that because if all you do is, is basic clinic, you don't do inpatient ER, OB, any of the other any other things, then maybe you have a little bit more time to deal with the headaches that are part and parcel of the medical system. But whenever you're running back and forth down the hallway to the ER all the time or you're delivering babies or you're doing other things, you're going I was also a coroner, so I was going out on coroner calls. Like when you're doing all these other things and then on top of all that, you got to spend the next three hours when you should be spending some time with your family doing paperwork and you just feel like a glorified insurance clerk, who just clicking boxes for some insurance company. Why? So they can make more profit for their shareholders to buy more yachts. I mean, no, I'm done. And I, I had two choices. It was either leave medicine and go, I'm, you know, I'm good at other things or get out and rebuild the system, <clears throat> rebuild a different system that makes the existing system obsolete, which is what so many of us have done. And um, now it was, a, that was the answer. And it, it really, uh, spelled freedom for me.
0: I'm so glad it did though, because I think back to the fact that we're both practicing rural family medicine doctors and yep. rural family medicine doctors are not a, a, you know, a breed that is very common. I feel.
1: No, um, we are not. I honestly, I believe that I've said this a lot and I know you'll agree with me, but I, and I, and I, I always had to kind of preface this because it, I don't want to insult anybody, but I honestly believe that at least inside the system for the, and again, there's always exceptions, but in general, I really believe that rural family medicine and urban family medicine have grown in two completely separate specialties. And I bet yeah. you, you feel that too.
0: I, I absolutely do 110% just thinking about, especially back to my training back in Superior, Nebraska, where, I mean, from day one, I was catapulted from this urban Creighton university, family medicine residency, where literally we got the bottom of the barrel of cases of, uh, patients of pathology. And then all of a sudden in superior, I wake up six thirty in the morning and I've shared this before, but yeah, you you're the one holding the colonoscopy scope. At six thirty on your first day of your rotation, and mm-hmm. you also have to manage the patients in the ER as they're coming in, and you also have to transfer the OB patient to Grand Island. You know, so I absolutely understand where you're coming from because until you see it, it is such a stark difference. I feel so. I, mm-hmm. I do agree with you, hundred and ten percent.
1: Well, out, out in the out in the uh, rural areas, you just don't have all the specialists. You don't have the hospitals full of other doctors to lean on, and you can't you can't uh, punt everything that seems like it might be a little bit of a challenge. Like, uh, you know, I did this residency, but it's been a while. You just got to do it. And we broaden our scope or we at least continue what was a broad scope in residency in the practice in a rural area. We're in the cities. It's so easy to lean on hospitalists for all your inpatient care. So now you lose all your inpatient care ability and skills. Same thing goes for all the procedural medicine stuff, things you can do in the office. You just stop doing because it's so easy to send it somewhere else and keep keep moving. So you can, you know, be a hamster in the hamster wheel and out here, man, you got to do it all. So I honestly, I think the DPC lends itself well to rural medicine because we have the broader scope. We have more, now we're not doing paperwork and coding and all the bull crap. So now we have more time to do, uh, procedures and educate ourselves and to stay on top of, of, uh, the training and, uh, keep those skills sharp and stuff like that. So I, man, I wouldn't do it any other way. I'm honestly, especially since I got my new clinic open here just a few months ago, Sometimes I I swear it's like I wake up and I have to pinch myself because I it's like there's no way, it doesn't even seem possible that I could be so happy, like after so many years of being miserable, you know, and that talk that that you heard, the carrot seed talk, the motivational talk I did at the end of the DPC summit in 2019, I talked about uh, that letter I wrote to a company. I was really mad about the certificate of medical necessity and I I wrote them this long smart aleck deal. And I looked at the date on that, and it was less than one year after I started practice out of residency. So I, I worked in, I worked on the inside for nine years. I was talking about, thinking about, and planning DPC before one year was over. I was burning out in just a year. It, it's uh, it's like the Bruce Hornsby song, you know. It's just that's just the way it is, you know. And so you you just think, well, this is my lot in life or something. And I was just never. Luckily, I I never was willing to just roll over and keep taking it forever. But that now that I've done it, now that I've dug myself out and now that I've built this, uh, I just I am so happy and I have to pinch myself every morning because it's great. And I feel like and this is the not like me because I'm pretty optimistic, but sometimes like the the optimist in me goes to sleep and the pessimist is like just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, OK, something's going to happen. Like, Something's going to happen and this is all going to fall apart. So hopefully that doesn't happen.
0: This is just a side note, but I love it. You're drinking your day, mountain <laughs> It's the best thing
1: ever. <laughs> it's Always. the
0: best thing ever. Oh my gosh. Um, you no, know, but I would be hard pressed to find a listener who could not relate to that. If they're listening to this podcast, I'm sure they can feel to in their bones, the frustration that just, you know, a little over a year into practicing in the system and you were already feeling that. And so I, I, on that note, I want to ask, how did you even learn about DPC?
1: So uh, I was kind of plugged into it really early on um, in a couple of ways. One is it helps being in Kansas because this is kind of the epicenter of a lot of the DPC growth. But uh, when I was in, when I was in residency, uh, my third year of residency, I was a chief resident and we had a student, a guy you may have heard of named Josh Umber. And so Josh spent a month doing a sub-internship at my residency program, and he was already thinking a lot about free market medicine. And back then, it was, you know, that there was no, DPC wasn't even a word yet. I, that had never even been uttered. But uh, free market medicine was a thing. There were people out there experimenting with this thing they called the ideal micro practice, which is where there's a doctor, no nurse, no nobody else. And I had a friend named Chris Brown who was doing the ideal micro practice, still a good friend, nice guy worked really hard at it. And he was, he was somewhat successful and he was doing it in the same town where my residency was in Salina, where I know you've been. Um, But he ended up, it ended up not working for him. And I think part of the reason he ultimately failed was because he was still taking insurance, even though he'd cut out all the overhead, had a small office and all the other things that we do. um, He was still just fighting those battles and having his time wasted by, by the middlemen. Right. And so, uh, that was one person I was watching. I was really watching Chris closely because I knew that I couldn't, I knew I was going to be in the system. I knew even after residency, I'd be in the system for a while because I had bills to pay or whatever. But I knew I couldn't do it forever. And I knew I had to do something different. So I was looking out. Uh, but then, then at the same time, the other free market thing that was happening back then was the, the kind of the origins of concierge medicine. And that's what Josh was following closely, and he was thinking along the lines of doing something like that after residency. Of course, he was just a fourth-year medical student, so he still had a few years to go. But, um, but that's what he was talking about. So he and I started talking, even when he was a medical student and I was a resident. And I already was aware that people were people were trying things, thinking differently. All of whom agreed with uh, uh, Buckminster Fuller's quote, uh, which I don't know if I can quote it perfectly, but it says something like. You can't change things you can't uh, improve things by changing the existing reality to improve things uh, build a new system that makes the old system obsolete that kind of thinking is what was happening in in the world and I was just following along with it so then I graduate I started I get I get recruited to Holton I came to Holton uh, started the practice at the hospital and uh, became friends also about that time uh, within a year or two with Brian Newhoffel who also was one of the very early DPC doctors, and he's just down the road an hour from me in Lawrence. So, um, kept in touch with him, kept in touch with, with, uh, obviously with Josh. And so I was already, I was already aware of what was going on inside the system, but, uh, or inside the the people who were playing around with free market medicine, but I didn't have at the time, the resources, um, or maybe entrep- entrepreneurship, whatever leap of faith, willingness to take whatever you call all that. I didn't quite have it yet. So I was just sort of seeing what other people were doing uh I was always talking about it always I was even my patients even the hospital when I signed my contract I told them I'm not staying here forever I'm doing something different I just don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet um and so uh so that's it wasn't like I I sort of just fe- heard about it or you know it was one of those things where I was plugged into the the thought people some of the thought leaders early on and stayed in touch with them and then watched them start you know they started they paved the way they started they were the the, the pioneers, I was behind them. I mean, don't get me wrong. I did do some things when I did come into DPC finally, um, that no one else had done. I was, I think one of the first, I mean, maybe Jack, I think you talked to Jack. I was one of the first to do, to do OB. Uh, I was probably one of the first to be very rural. Um, you know, so I did a few and I do a lot more procedures than some people do. So, you know, there were some things that I figured out, but it, by far I was just, man, I would thank God for those people in front of me that, that blazed the trail made life easier for me.
0: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Your calls for more content have not fallen on deaf ears. I am so excited to announce the MyDBC Story Patreon community. Delve into exclusive, full-length interviews with pioneers like Dr. Neeti Kapoor, our inaugural physician guest, and get further enlightening insights from our current season's doctors, starting with Dr. Harpreet Sui. Here, our guests share even more from their worst days to their best days and everything in between. Get access to this treasure trove of conversations and more by joining our My DPC Story community now. Check out the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com forward slash My DPC Story fan. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash My DPC Story fan. When you mentioned that that there was a, a small gap between you wanting to do direct primary care and you being in fee-for-service with those straws building on your back, what enabled you to finally make that jump?
1: The camel's back had to break. It was. A, I, I'm not going to say it was all the camel's, you know, one straw that broke back. There definitely was an, a big element of that. Um, but part of it was, like I told you, I was already planning on something like this. I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. And I was ready to jump and take that leap of faith when the time came. But I think part of it was I was saving money and getting out of debt and all that kind of stuff while I was working at the hospital. So I was making money and saving up because because here's the thing. When you go into DPC and you start a new business and do all the things that I've done, I mean, you're not making money for a while. So you need to be saving up. And I was doing all those things. So that was part of it was just getting to a place where I wasn't going to be financially injured. Uh, beyond repair uh, as i went into the the direct care uh, model but um the other part of it was seriously probably just like how strong is my back and there was a couple of i can't tell you all the stories and if i did i'd take up the whole podcast just telling tear-drinking stories about being a bad father and a bad husband and a bad doctor and a a bad person i, I mean i the job changes you it really it really can which is weird because other things don't change people you know like there's all these funny jokes about whatever people who get married and they're they marry someone that they know is not right for them but they have this weird like idea that oh I can change them or whatever like no no you can't don't marry someone who's bad for you but like for whatever reason we can't change other people but jobs will change us and the job the job was changing me and uh I just I um yeah I didn't like who I was becoming and and, uh you know that's not just the job's fault that's part of me just not being Resilient enough, probably as well, but I think that was part of it i I knew that i could I could be a better doctor, a better father, a better husband, and a better man if i if I wasn't being a slave at the same time. But I can tell you the day it happened it was like one thirty in the morning, I was sitting at my desk, which is it was in this like basically a closet, this little tiny this little tiny corner of a of a of a hallway where which I called my office in the hospital, and you know one thirty in the morning, there's not a soul in the clinic or anywhere. And I'm just doing ch- charting and paper, you know, all that stuff. And I don't know, it was just one of those days where the stars lined up. I'd had too many, too many pa- pieces of paper across my desk that day, too many nights in pr- previous days that I didn't get any sleep and too many everything. And then just, it was just one more, one drop in a C in a bucket of CMNs. One of those p- pieces, p- pieces of paper came across my desk and I was like, this is the one, this is the one out of 10,000 these I've filled out. This is the one that's going to make me quit. And I, I wrote a quick letter, a small, you know, short letter of resignation. And I walked down the hall in the middle of a dark hospital hallway where there was not a soul, you know, awake. And I slid it under the boss's door and I went home and, uh, and I woke my, I woke my wife up that I never woke my wife up when I got home, but I did that night. And I said, Hey baby, I just quit. <laughs> We got three months to figure out direct primary care. Cause I had a three month contract deal. I had to give my, my contract said I had to give three months notice. And so I was like, we got three months to figure out direct primary care. She's like, okay, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out in the morning. <laughs> she went back to sleep, but she knew that was coming. I've been joking every day, every day. You know, that have you seen um, the princess bride?
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Okay. So you know how uh, Carrie Elvis's character, he talks about whenever he was uh, taken prisoner by the, uh, the pirate and uh, how every day the pirate like would uh, when he was going to bed he would say like goodnight Wesley I'll most likely kill you in the morning you know and it was like their ongoing joke or whatever. I had that with my wife just about every day for probably the last year of my employment at the hospital. I said I'm I'm gonna quit tomorrow. <laughs> I said I'm gonna quit tomorrow. And it was it was like it was just like that every day. I'm like tomorrow's my last day. I'm quitting tomorrow. And she she was always like soon soon just hang in there a little longer you know let's pay some bills or whatever. But anyway.
0: I'm so glad that you had that that support though. You know that someone at home was able to, you know, go along with it and not yeah. discourage or not be too scared to No, she's a rock star. You.
1: She's a rock star. She's always had faith in in my vision for this kind of stuff and she stands by me and you know like that whole stand by your man thing even if he's not always a very good person like she's like that. She she's got my back and Uh, And she trusted me through all this. And thank God, because it's everything is so much better now. She's working for the clinic and is our business manager and she's killing it. And um, it's good. It's a good thing. You're right. There's no way I could have done anything I've done without her. No doubt about it. Don't edit that out. That stays in.
0: You got it. Now, I want to ask with you mentioning that she's your office manager. Yeah. You have you have your wife, Erin. You have Sharon, who's an LPN. And you, now you also have Daniel, who is an APRN and an FNP. And I wanted to ask, over the time that Holton has been open, can you share about how everybody was onboarded as Holton has continued to, to, to serve the community?
1: Sure. So, there's a, uh, a couple of things. Um, first of all, the first thing you mentioned was uh, that I have my wife, the office manager, Sharon, our nurse, and then Daniel Jones, our nurse practitioner. Um, Sharon actually just got uh, recruited away from me. She's going to go to a specialty uh, office down, down the road and uh, 30 miles from here. Um, so I'm actually recruiting right now and inter- doing some interviews. I just had a big interview last night. I'm probably going to bring on an R in now that um, since Sharon's leaving anyway, and I'm, I'm, I've am I'm got a continue growing i'm going to bring on an rn so that we can start doing more iv stuff and therapy um, if we need to um so that will we will have a little staff change and we'll move from lpn to most likely to rn um in uh, here in the next couple of weeks i would think by the time this goes live or go, gets published or whatever so i did want to tell you that because that's a brand new brand new development in the last 48 hours um <clears throat> with regard to my wife so uh, my wife, uh, since before I started Holton Direct care has uh, ran her own business, which is a bakery and or more of a it's a coffee shop with a bake she does some baking too they sell some baked goods and stuff and then there's a big room in the back that we rent out for uh, you know facility a rental facility for parties and whatever and uh, that was a building uh, downtown Holton it was the old JC Penneys building and I the in a couple of years before I started direct care i I renovated that building and she started that business. And we actually just two days ago signed uh, the final paperwork to sell that, that business because she's been operating and it. it's been going well, obviously as a restaurant type building or business COVID hurt us a little bit with it, but um, bottom line is that was a good business, but it wasn't making any huge amount of money by any means. And the clinic here is growing and she's good at running businesses and doing all the behind the scenes you know, payroll tax and checks and just, you know, business management stuff. And so when I started uh, the clinic, I still did a ton of that, but Erin did some of it and she got to do, she got to where she was doing more and more of the payroll and those kinds of things. And um, but not all the business management and, and supplies and materials management, my nurse and I did all that. But over time, as, as my nurse and I got busier and busier as the practice grew, we really had to have Aaron, doing more stuff. So she was actually coming in the afternoons when she closed the coffee shop and doing some work at night. And she got to where she just felt like she wasn't able to, to give enough to both her coffee shop business and to the clinic. And it became pretty obvious that we really needed to probably let the coffee shop go. And so put it on the market about a year ago. And we actually just got it sold uh, just a couple of days ago. So uh, she's coming on full-time uh, starting actually 48 hours from now, starting Monday, she's going to be full-time with us and um So that's sort of how that worked out. Um, I don't think that every direct primary care office needs an office manager. The doctor starting a DPC can handle it, at least at first. But at some point, you get busy enough, you're going to have to start delegating some things. But then that's the benefit of it. You get busy enough, you start bringing in more money. It's easier to hire office management or whoever. So um, it's really nice whenever the office manager can be your spouse and then you don't have to pay them. So no, just kidding. She's getting paid eventually, but you know how it is. It's, every business has to grow. So um, with regard to Daniel, at what point did I say, let's bring on another provider? How did I do it? How did I recruit? Those kinds of things. Um, I, I was ready to bring on another provider as soon as my, my personal panel got full. And I kind of, because I'm so busy with Drug Primary Care Alliance and other uh, things, I'm involved uh, a lot with my church here in Holton and just stuff with kids and sports and you know everything. That I didn't really feel comfortable going real heavy on the patient panel, just because it's such a time-consuming. I mean, we, you know, at Direct Care, we 24-hour access to us and all those things. I didn't want to go too far above 500, 600, somewhere in that range was my thinking. I ended up capping at around 550, uh, built up a, to um, uh, a waiting list of about 100 or a little more, 130 maybe. Um, and at that, as soon as I capped and started the waiting list, I was looking. The problem is, as you know. Recruiting is challenging into direct care to begin with. It's even more challenging in a rural area because some people don't understand that rural America is America's best kept secret and whatever, that's fine. And so um, it was a little bit hard uh, to recruit anyway. But I've also found, and I'm sure you've, you've heard some of us talk about this, but I think I've found that doctors on the inside, people who are already practicing medicine inside the system, the ones who are cut out of whatever it is that we're cut out of that makes us do this leap of faith and and do this model, they kind of want out anyway. And they seem to find us, you know? Uh, you mentioned Amber recently. She's a good example of that. She was on the inside. She's like, I got to get out. And she sort of found direct care. In my in my experience, that's the way most, most docs on the inside of the system who are burning out, that's what they do. And, and whenever I've talked to my friends who are doctors who are inside, who I think would be a great, who had been a great partner here. You know, I I said come join me and let's do this, you know. They 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 all say kind of something along the same lines, which is like, man, it looks awesome. It's almost too good to be true, but you know, how, what's it pay? And I'm like, it pays literally nothing on your first day. If you get one patient, then it pays 50 dollars a month. You know, like it's eat what you kill environment and we're competing with these massive hospital billion dollar hospital systems little throw, you know, whatever, $70,000 signing bonuses, and you know, all this stuff. And they like, Oh, I've got these huge mortgages on my house and I got all this lifestyle to pay for. I'm like, doesn't work that way. You can't, you sort of can't have both. You have to either, there's no free lunch, you know? And so, because of course we always call that the golden handcuffs, you know, they, they just, they're on them and they, they have a hard time taking them off. So, I found it hard to recruit. And um, after a year or so, I I never recruited with regard to like publishing, you know, job available or whatever. Because, you know, those are people who are like, that's the first question. What's it pay? Is there a signing bonus? Do you pay for moving expenses? Like, no, I don't have any money. I can't do any of that. The only thing I can offer you is a job you'll love. And that's not good enough for a ton of people. It's just not. And so uh, I honestly just, I kind of got convicted that I just, it was no different than probably how I chose to be in medicine when I was a young kid. I just sort of knew that was what I was supposed to do. I just sort of got convicted that the right person would find me, and I didn't advertise I didn't do anything. I mean, I made sure people knew I told all my patients, boy, I'd love to have some help if you if you talk to anybody who's in you know medic medicine that you know let them know and that kind of stuff and it was just kind of i made it I made it known that I was looking for help without actually publishing it and um I don't know how else to say it i, I just i i I've gotten this idea that outside of maybe students and residents, if you're teaching and bringing in people who who are like, well, I hear how bad this system sucks. I don't want that. Maybe I'll come work for you. I think that might have some promise. But as far as just recruiting doctors that are already working on inside the system, if you don't have a big fat checkbook, that's hard to do. And so I decided my conviction was, I think I just need to make it available and it's out there. And when the good Lord's ready, you know, he'll send somebody to, for the position. And that's exactly what happened with Daniel. Um, Daniel was, he's a really strong family nurse practitioner with lots of experience, uh, all over, uh, medicine. And, uh, at the time he was running, uh, an electrophysiology lab at a big hospital, about 30 miles from here. And, um, one of my patients, uh, started having paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and nothing could control it. And we really had to send him for ablation and that's, and my patient was in, you know, the, whatever you call it, the pre-op room or something, uh, meeting with Daniel and uh Daniel needed some labs or something like that, so she picks up her, her. This is the patient's wife. She picks up her phone, calls me real quick, and says, "Hey, you know what was uh his potassium last week?" You know, and I look it up real quick. I'm like, "Yeah, it was 3.5, whatever." And then she tells the, the Daniel this, and he's like, "Wait a minute, you just got your potassium from last week by calling your doctor on your cell phone and had an answer for me in like 25 seconds or 30 seconds or whatever." And she's like, "Well, yeah, but I mean, he's a direct primary care doctor, so we can do things like that." And he's like. Oh, there's direct primary care around here. He just didn't know, you know, and, but he'd heard about it and he had been really fed up with uh, political stuff and administrative burdens and all the stuff that we all know and hate. And, um, so he gave me, she's like, yeah, I think he's actually looking for a partner, you know, cause I told her, just like I told everybody. And so he gave me a call. I said, you've got to come up here and see what we're doing. You need to see it. And he drove up here the next day and the idea was to meet for half an hour And we ended up spending an hour in my clinic and then we went down to the, there's like a sports bar and grill place and sat down and ate and drank and spent like three or four hours talking and shook hands on a deal right there. Like it was that fast. And it was just, I had to wait for the right person to show up who wanted the job. It it was, and uh, you know, he and I are like long lost brothers. We get along great. You know,
0: that's, that's just awesome.
1: Yeah. I just don't think, I don't know, man. I got to tell you, I, I don't know how, You would recruit for this because like you said, you've got to sell it and you've got to turn someone into a believer like, Hey, yeah, you want a job that's awesome where you don't make any money until you like do the work and blah, blah, blah. And that is a hard bill to sell to anybody. It's a lot easier if they already want out, they already recognize the problem and they understand how they can build a practice by, you know, making a lot of satisfied patients who can't help. They go, wow, this is so much better. I got to tell my friends. And that's the way he was. He, I didn't have to convince him about everything, everything he heard. He was like, this is what I've been, you know, he was like, I found my people. Like we all were the first time we ever went to a DPC conference or something. And so I, I think, uh, I'm not saying you probably can't do it the other way, but first you have to convince someone. I mean, I guess any salesman does that. The first thing they do is convince someone that they need the thing that they're selling. Right. But it's a whole lot easier if the person, if you're a vacuum salesman who comes door to door and is like, hey, you need this vacuum. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I don't. You know what I mean? It's a whole lot easier if you're at a vacuum store and I come into your store saying, my carpet's dirty. You see what I'm saying? I guess it's something like that.
0: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you to Spruce Health for supporting the My DPC Story podcast. The ways we communicate have changed dramatically over the past decades, but technology and tools in healthcare have not kept pace. Patients want more access and digital convenience, as well as the ability to text their care teams. Care teams are inundated with more communication and rising expectations, but are still using tools and technology stuck in prior decades. Spruce Health created a solution for the tech-forward DPC practice by creating a communication product designed to serve both the patient and the doctor through intuitive HIPAA-compliant workflows, tagging, scheduled messages, and triage templates ready for use, whether you're on your phone or in the exam room. New users get 20% off for the first 12 months of a paid plan with code Maryal 20 That's maryal 2 So check out Spruce Health today at sprucehealth.com or check out the link in the show notes. It's very true, though. I think that, you know, strategically when people are planning copy on their websites, especially if they're looking to open you know that's that's the technique that a lot of people swear by is what's the problem that you're fixing and start with the your why including yep. how you are helping another person because especially with covid we've seen the desperation that is out in our, in our society, all around us, no matter if you're in a rural or urban community for primary care, for access to your doctor, when you need your doctor. So that is incredible that your patients just called you for their potassium. I, it just makes me think of two things though, how one, um, just like you did at the end of the summit in 2007, in 2019, how you are talking about, you tell everyone, you, you tell everyone you plant those seeds and who knows when that that carrot will grow when someone will jump into DPC, will have that, will take that leap of faith. But also it makes me think about how uh, you were mentioning how you have shirts in all sizes and you just hand out those shirts and people will wear them for you to advertise for you. And I think that, yep. you know, if, 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 I I'm assuming that they were both wearing your shirts when they went to go get their electrophysiology physiology study, but I love <laughs> that. Yeah. But I love that by their words, they were telling about what you are doing, what the direct primary care movement is all about, and just how you're saying, you know, there was someone ready, ripe for the picking, ripe to to transfer over. I, I, I honestly think that that is how we're going to be successful as the numbers have shown. I mean, we have grown exponentially. Look at, look at every day on the Facebook DPC docs group, Doug Farago is posting, hey, got a it's, new doc on DPC News, DPC, got a new doc. His, yeah,
1: it's Fargo's new website, DPC News. I mean, you're right. I, I I subscribe to that and I get the emails. And almost every day he has a story of a new DPC clinic opening. I mean, at least one a week. I mean, maybe not every day, but I mean, probably more than one a week. And that's that's amazing. It, but it's been that way for quite some time. I mean, it's it's really good.
0: Now, going back to... Now talking about your patient population, you said your city you're, you said you're around 550 and then that's when Daniel has, that's where Daniel has helped out in terms of giving access to the people who are beyond that 550. Yep. But I wanted to ask you when you opened, d- did you have patients follow you or did you start out with zero patients?
1: Uh no, I did have some follow me over. So when I I was working at the hospital, I gave them the 3 months and I did not uh, I didn't have a non compete really i i wouldn't sign a non-compete when they signed my contract here they 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 wanted me to and i said no i don't i don't i don't do that and so they said okay so they they needed me i i mean especially in rural kansas where the doctors are in in short supply you know it's it's kind of a it's a buyer's market for doctors and so you get a fair amount of latitude with your contract negotiation so i I wasn't going to sign a a, a (laughs) non-compete anyway so i already had that starting point but um when I, but I did have a three-month deal where I had to give them three months' notice before I left. So I had those three months I was still practicing, and during that time, I just talked to all my patients about what I was doing. Um, I, I put together my website pretty quickly with a lot of like what frequently asked questions on there, like we all have on our websites an FAQ: How does this model work? And what's different or whatever. And I just wrote down the website on on a little. Well, I just made some little business cards or whatever with the website on there, and I said, "This is what I'm going to be doing. You know, I'm leaving in three months." Love to have you follow me if you, you know, if you want to. Um, and um never I I honestly didn't know what to expect. And you probably heard this from a lot of doctors when they talk about the transition from uh managed care into 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 uh the free market world and in direct care. Um, I would say uh my statistics were right on with most others I've talked to, and that is I had about 10% follow me. So um, I had, you know, I had thousands of patients, at least two thousand, and I had about two hundred that followed me. So that's right on that ten percent. And here's the other thing, and I know you probably heard this before too. Uh, some of your listeners may not have heard this, but uh, that ten percent seems to be pretty common. That r- roughly that many follow you. And the other thing that we all say is you can't predict who is going to be. Some people that were just your best patients, who loved you and would bring you food and like tell their friends how great you are, won't follow you because you don't take insurance and. By God, you know, insurance is their religion. They they must have you must use the Almighty, you know, Blue Cross card or whatever, and they won't follow you. And other people who you're like, yeah, I don't even think that guy liked me, and they're the first ones to sign up. So you you don't know who's gonna follow you, but but you can count on probably about ten percent as long as you make sure that they know. Now I, I do think I do think there were some that didn't know uh, what I was doing because I didn't see them during that three month period, and my hospital was not cool about telling people. What I was doing, in fact, uh, they sent out a letter to all of my patients, a form letter um, that it didn't state, but it it very firmly implied that I was leaving, leaving, like moving away from Holton. In fact, just not even not even six months ago, I was at the the farm store here in town, and I ran into a patient who I knew I delivered two of her kids back in the day and, uh, she was overjoyed to see me. She's Dr. Lassie, Dr. Lassie. Oh, you're back. You're back. I didn't know you were here. We need a doctor so bad. I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, and she was like, well, where did you move? Where did you go? And I'm like, I never went anywhere. I've been here the whole time. She had no concept that letter led her to believe that I had left. And that's, that's par for the course. You know, I don't want to bad mouth anybody, but you're not always going to get a ton of support from colleagues and other people that, that, uh, you know, when you're fighting the system, the people who have something to gain by being in the system, they're going to naturally oppose you to some degree. So that that kind of happened. But anyway, I had I talked to everybody I could, and it is a small enough town that word travels. And I got an article in the paper about what I was doing, and you know, I advertised in the paper and on Facebook and whatever. And I had about um, 100. I want to say about 190 people signed up during that three month period. Whenever I got the website up and running to sign up and I didn't charge them at that time, but I was like, you can sign up now. And then I'll charge you once we, once we open the doors, you know? So I had close to maybe close to 200. The other thing I'll tell you is that in the next year or so, another, at least 50, if not 75, I don't know, another 50 to 75 patients who didn't follow me right away. They thought, well, you know, I'll get one of the other doctors that works at the hospital, keep using insurance and all that. But then they found themselves to be unsatisfied with either the personnel or the level of care or all the stuff, you know, the weights and the waiting room and how long it took for appointments. And they only got five minutes of doctor's time. Doctor never touched them, whatever their complaint was. They just started comparing and contrasting that with the service level I was giving them when I worked there. And they're like, yeah, we, we want you. And so then they would come back. In fact, even now I've been out uh, on my own now going to direct care, like almost six years or something. And, uh, even within the last, I'd say four months, I have had another couple of dozen patients who were my patients five or six years ago, who finally are getting around. They're like, we're sorry. We know you're really full and you probably don't have room in your panel. And we should have come a long time ago. I don't know what took us so long, you know, and I'm like, no, come on, come on, get in here. You know, it's fine. And, and, uh, so they, they do follow you eventually a lot of them, but I would say 10 to 15% of what you should expect. And that's about what I had.
0: When you talk about, come on and join us, you know, it, it makes me think about how, you know, you, you talk about rural medicine and how it just not everybody is cut out to practice family medicine, much more, uh, much less rural medicine. But you know, I love that, like you've said, you love your life now and you love your job and you, you have to pinch yourself to, to wake up yeah. um to think that you work in your job. But when when I hear you say, you know, come come on, you're you're all inclusive and, and wanting to add more people. I feel that because, you know, in in right now it's, it's a matter of, I'm completely full for the day. I don't have any space. There's no time whatsoever on my schedule, but absolutely I will take you because I care about you, yes. which is such a hard thing for people to understand when they don't as patients, they don't see where we're coming from as doctors that we are people too. And that, especially when when there's frustration about, I couldn't see my doctor for three weeks and I have a problem now. It's like, <laughs> we have that same frustration because we didn't, in a yeah. lot of cases, you know, we might not even know that you needed to be seen.
1: Yeah, I hated that. Somebody who's not me. That's in the top 10 list of why I left. I I, I hated whenever my patients couldn't in, couldn't get in to see me. And either they saw nobody or they saw they ended up seeing somebody else somewhere else or one of the, maybe a PA or nurse practitioner that worked for our office. And I maybe I didn't get told that they were even here. And I... Or they did. They need. I would have been glad to squeeze them in, see them somehow. But the nurses are trying to, you know, protect the calendar and the schedule to some degree, keep me on task because I would get two hours behind or whatever. So they would just put them in with somebody else. And my patients didn't like it, but neither did I because I want continuity of care. I want to provide them that care. And uh, yeah, this. But again, the system's broken, and all those things are are all. That's all consequences of this third party system. It's it's all absolutely fallout from that.
0: Now, I want to ask, and, and, you know, I don't know if you're going through these exercises now with Daniel building up his panel, but what did you do or what do you recommend in terms of, if you have 10% of 2,000 following you, what do you recommend in terms of how to onboard those patients? Do you onboard, you know, so many a day uh, as new in new patient visits or how do
1: you... Sorry to interrupt you. Do you you mean the people that were on the waiting list that we were onboarded after he joined? Is that what you're talking about?
0: Those people, but also like when you had 200 people follow you after those three months were up, how did you get those people in so that they were established in your practice?
1: What I did was um, I had two town hall meetings uh, in in town. Again, my my wife and I have that. We had that coffee shop with an event center. So we just set up a bunch of chairs and we advertised these town hall meetings in the newspaper and on Facebook and everything and the radio or whatever. And we had we had about uh, 200 people come out to the town hall meetings. And then um, we handed out little card. If you say if you want to join, fill out this card, put your information on it. And then we just worked our way through that my nurse just worked her way through all that and signed people up onto the website um, or onto our EMR. Now, m- majority of, especially for the older folks that aren't big on computers and stuff, for them for most folks though, we just provided them a link. We're just like go to this link and join, click the button, fill out the form, you know, and it all goes onto the EMR automatically and that's what most people did. So those people are on, they were all over those 3 months, they were all onboarded, ready to go as soon as we opened all we had to do was go into their charts one at a time and turn on billing. Since it was, you know, they weren't getting billed up until then. Um, so that's how I onboarded the 10% is I just, I just got them all on the system and then sent out a group email to, you know, sent out an email that went out to everybody and said, we're open. Come anytime. Here's my, you know, here's my phone number, text number, email, whatever. Let's do this. Um, and it was pretty straightforward. And with regard to Daniel. So I already had a hundred plus people on the waiting list. Um, what we did is after he started, we announced in a patient wide email that uh, he was here and he was open and ready to take patients and stuff. Um, But then we just, we just literally started calling our way down the, the waiting list. And it was important to Daniel to, to keep every minute he had free occupied by making those phone calls because everybody who said, yep, I want in off the waiting list. That was money in his pocket. And so his, going from having no income to having some income was determined upon him signing those people up. So he and my wife, Aaron, the business manager, and my nurse, Sharon, all three, when they had time, would make phone calls to people on the waiting list until we had systematically gone through the entire waiting list. And one thing that people who may not have done this yet should expect is when you have that waiting list, not everybody on the waiting list is going to want in once they have time. They got on the waiting list whenever they had an urgent need of some kind. And now that thing is healed up and whatever And you call them and they're like, I don't know if I need to yet. Okay, maybe later or whatever. And you're not going to convert 100% of the waiting list. But I'd say we probably got 75 or 80% of the waiting list signed up on the Daniels uh, Daniels panel. And then he just started seeing patients, taking care of people, doing what we all do, which is give everybody hour-long visits, send them an email or a text the next day, check on them. Hey, how are you feeling? All this level of service that is, I'm talking 99% better than anything they've ever experienced in medicine before. And when you give them that much better service that they just can't help but tell their friends, it's so much different than what what they expected. And then word of mouth takes over. And so Daniel, you know, he might've picked up 85, 90 patients, I don't know, somewhere in there off of um, off of the waiting list over the first month or so of of joining us. He started here in September when we opened the new clinic and um, uh, within, you know, within another four or five months at the most, not even not, not four, maybe, maybe three or four months. He, he was up to 200 and maybe 250. I mean, he's growing. He's signing new people up every week. So again, and we haven't done not a single shred of advertising. If you don't count sending an email to our patients saying that Daniel's up, you know, he's, he's open. We haven't done radio, internet, Facebook, newspaper, nothing. It's just, you take good, good care of people and they tell their friends that's all we've had to do. And he's growing pretty fast. So.
0: and. I want to just remind people that you're not in a big city that he's growing fast in a town of 4,000 people. And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that people are driving like 30 minutes or more to see you because they value the care.
1: That's something that's worth mentioning is yeah, our town only has 4,000, but the, our patients are, are driving from, yeah, upwards of 30, 40 minutes away. Um, And if you go and make a, a radius from here uh, that includes that 30, 40 minute drive, the the, the population, the drawing population becomes closer to 10,000. So we have people coming from Topeka, which is the nearest big city, which is a half an hour away. We have people coming from small towns, similar to Holton, 4,000, 3,000, 5,000 people towns, a half an hour north of here, Sabetha, Seneca, Hiawatha, uh, Valley Falls, Meriden, Little Towns, all over Northeast Kansas, all within 30 miles of here. We have patients coming from all of them. So even though, now, the majority of our patients do come from the, from within 10 miles of here, the Holden area, which again is in that 4,000 people range. But I would say our actual drawing area that we are actively getting patients from is probably closer to 10,000, but it, that's as long as people are willing to drive. And in, in rural areas, as you know, driving is part of life. People are totally fine with driving 30 or 40 minutes and the, the difference is they're going 30 or 40 miles, where in the city, people also go through, spend 40 minutes in their car, but the only guy they only go four miles. So it's the same thing, I guess.
0: It's very true. It, it makes you think about how in March of last year, I remember seeing the freeways in LA were completely empty. And I was like, oh my goodness, I would mm-hmm. love to drive there right this second. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, For your patients and now for Daniel's patients, given that you guys are in a rural community with lots of small towns like you're describing. Are there small employer groups who tend to ne- tend to um, gravitate towards you guys because of the model that you practice?
1: Yeah, there have been recently. I, I never so my intention when I opened the practice um, in 2016, my intention was to do a fair amount of that. We'll make make deals with small employers that have you know five, ten, whatever employees, and bring people in that way because it's a great way. As everybody knows, it's it's a common and not bad way to grow your practice and and. Um, growing practice is good so that was kind of my original plan but weirdly like everyone just told their friends and I grew organically by word of mouth and I ended up I ended up never doing that almost at all I made I made in the first three years I made one deal with an employer that had two patients it was no big deal everybody else was just families word of mouth stuff and then um that that I was full just I mean that fast it was just that was how it worked but then uh, Daniel joined us. He he got all the people off the waiting list, and now we're like, okay, how can we grow more? And about that same time, we did start having some phone calls from some local employers. And since then, uh, we've signed up a couple of small employers with five, ten patients each uh, that are all coming onto Daniel's panel. And so we've done a little of that. I'm willing, you know, I'm willing to do more. It has its pros and cons. On the Direct Primary Care Alliance, uh, the DPC University, where we have a lot of question and answers and articles about things. Shane uh, Purcell and I each wrote an article. He wrote the pros of using uh, employer groups to grow your DPC because he's so big into that in South Carolina. I wrote one about the cons, and it's not that I'm against it; I just never worked out. But there are cons. I mean, you know, I don't think that's the purpose of this podcast to go over the cons of, of that, but. And I've done it a couple of times now. We'll probably do some more, but honestly, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of our patients. Maybe, I mean, we might have 15 patients out of what now, 7, 800 uh, that are employer people. Everybody else is just uh, families. So
0: what's what's your elevator speech that you use for Holton Direct?
1: If I was talking to employers, I, I would include something about how you can save money compared to what you're doing with your bloated insurance plan you have now or whatever. Maybe talk to them about split the split the savings with your uh, with your employees and let them use the the money that they get on maybe a, a health sharing ministry or something where they can end up getting the same amount of coverage for half the money and everybody gets everybody wins everybody gets more money in their in their bank at the end of the day. But when I'm talking to people, my elevator speech is basically just middlemen are really hungry in medicine and they they make uh, doctors' lives miserable. They make doc, they make patients have a long line of access to care. They can't get good access to care when they do it's fragmented it's short they only get five minutes with their doctor they wait three weeks for an appointment and they get charged astronomical rates like you know all the horror stories three hundred dollars for a Tylenol or whatever i'm like all that goes away and and uh it's freedom and it's it feels good and i kind of tell everybody i'm like you just gotta come see it you just you know you just have to come see it. Take my word for it. But it's funny. Everybody has this elevator speech that they they talk about the thirty second pitch that they can rehearse recite like it's you know the pledge of allegiance or something. And I don't have one. I just I I have awesome ones. I have probably a th- they it's different every time, but it's organic. It just comes up in conversation, and I I sell it really well. But not <laughs> it's not like I'm rehearsing it. It's weird. I don't know why I don't have one that's memorized like that. But I think what I do is I see. I meet people where they are the same way we do anything when we meet with a patient in a clinic is you don't talk to two people the same way. If you're a good family doctor, you recognize that you, you need different communication techniques for different people. And um, and so I, I sort of see where they are. And if they have a thing, oh, man, I, you should see how much I paid to have X, Y, Z done. And I'm like, oh, man, that would have been free at my clinic. And then we take it from there. Or maybe they're like, oh, it took me three weeks to get into my my doctor. I'm like, that's funny. My patient called me this morning at eight and I saw I saw her at 10, you know, and, th- and they're like, what? You know, and again, if they're the ones that are the the customer, then the salesman's job is to figure out uh, to make them convinced that they need it. So you got to figure out what it is that they need. If it's there, they need savings. Then my elevator speech is along the lines of here's how much money we can save you. If it's, man, I spend so much money on prescriptions at the pharmacy. Then I take the the wholesale pharmacy route. I'm like, wow, we can save you 90%. If they have to get lab work all the time, same drill. If it's golly, I can't ever get in to see my doctor because they see 30 a day and they're always full. And I always end up seeing their PA or whatever. I'm like, that doesn't happen here either, and I so I just figure out what it is that I they want me to sell them, and then I sell to them in thirty seconds.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it because you know I I think about when I am educating others about DPC, especially mm-hmm. through like Facebook Messenger, for example. It's uh, my reaching out to people is prompted because of what they've written. Like I'm a PGY two. I you know I'm looking to do direct care, and I talk with that person very differently than I would somebody who is I've been in uh, my practice for six years and I don't know what the options are. I'm, I'm scared. So I I think that's beautiful that you, you know, that you are, you're building that authenticity from the get-go by approaching someone and educating someone based on what they need.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause some people don't care about certain, like if I say, Oh, I can save you all this money on prescriptions. Like, well, I don't, I don't take any prescriptions. I don't, I don't care. You know, that doesn't help me. And so, yeah, you figure out what it is, but if it's a, uh, it's some farmer who doesn't take medicine and doesn't like to go to the doctor, and uh, but at the same time, I got this is one of my patients. He I put stitches in this guy at least once a year for the last ten years. <laughs> he's always getting hurt. Farming is a dangerous job, or maybe he's just clumsy. I don't know, but he's a good example. He doesn't take medicine. He doesn't really go to the doctors very often. He's pretty healthy. He's very active. You know, eats pretty clean or whatever. What, why would he give me the equivalent of whatever it is for him, five hundred bucks a year, six hundred bucks a year? If he never goes to a doctor, it doesn't take any medicine and as far as he knows is healthy. And I could, yeah, you can pitch the whole, well, yeah, you think you're healthy, but you don't know. Maybe you need to check up and let me do some blood work on that's not going to work on a guy like that. He's still not going to come to the doctor because he's not dying, right? But that's a guy who's going to the ER to get stitches put in his body twice a year. And each time, I don't care how minimal and wimpy and tiny the laceration, he ain't getting out of there for less than eight hundred thousand dollars right there. So right there, he's he's paid for his membership and then some just in saving him money every time he has a minor injury that needs some stitches or, or whatever. So again, you figure out what it is that is there is ho- how you can help them. And then all of a sudden that you make it worth their while. Um, it's funny. Cause that guy was actually about to discontinue his membership a couple of years ago. And it was a Sunday morning and I was running the soundboard for our praise team at church. And it was like eight o'clock or nine, nine o'clock in the morning. And he calls me and he had gone to the ER a bull had smashed his thumb between a panel and the wall or something and just destroyed his thumb. It was bad. And, and he was at the ER, he went to the hospital and when he was sitting there and the nurse was checking him in, they said, who's your primary care? And he said, Lassie. And then he's like, Oh, I forgot. I have a direct care. It's totally (laughs) forgotten. He was so in the, in the practice of going to the ER for these injuries. So he gets out of his phone. He calls me. I'm like, yeah, man, I can meet you at the clinic in like 10 minutes. And so he left the ER AMA, of course, ticked them off and he drove to my clinic and his, I, I was able to put his thumb back together and I'm really glad he did because if he'd gone, if he had stuck with the ER, I guarantee you that our ER is almost completely staffed by mid levels. His thumb was bad enough injury that I don't think any of them would have taken on that job and they would have ended up shipping him to Topeka, the nearest big city, and they probably would have uh, forwarded him on to a hand surgeon. And by the time the whole thing was over, he would have been in for five, 10 grand easy to put his thumb back together, but it was stuff I have experience with. And so I saw him here in the clinic. I got him all put back together and he took off, didn't cost him a penny. I was back before the second service at church and had done that service for that guy. And I was like, you, do you realize you just paid for like five years of your care and what you saved in this one ER visit? know, he was like, wow. And so again, there's a guy who's never going to, he's never going to discontinue his membership because he sees where the value is because it's, but his value, it's not in the meds. It's not in the same day appointments. It's not in the lack of three weeks of waiting. It's not any of that stuff. It's what do you do on Sunday morning? Whenever a bull smashes your thumb into five pieces, Like, you know, everybody has their own thing.
0: I love it. When you talk about value, I want to highlight that you are a full scope family medicine doctor who is doing inpatient medicine, who was doing OB until the hospital decided to discontinue the service, but still offering prenatal care. So in terms of your prenatal care, how does that work out for your moms? Do you transfer and have a certain group of OBs that you refer to? How does it work for, for your patients?
1: Yep. I, I just, uh, I bring them on and treat them prenatal care just like it always has been. And I just include it with their membership like anything else. Um, and we do all their lab work and, and everything. I've got a I've got a source for relatively affordable ultrasound that we do. And then yeah, whenever they hit, um, depending on who, where they go. So so hospitals that deliver babies, since our hospital doesn't do OB anymore and, and cut that off, um, there are basically three options and they're all about the same distance. So there's a hospital that's about 40, 40 minutes northeast of me. There's a hospital that's about 30 minutes west of me. And there's a, two hospitals that are about 30 minutes south of me. So I just give them the choice. And I have doctors I like at all three places. So I just say, you know, where do you want to have your baby? And some of them live maybe 10 or 15 miles, one direction. So they want to go that way because it's closer, which makes the most sense anyway. Um, and so then at, I just call the doc at, at some point and I say, hey, I'm going to have one uh, for you. And they, they, the docs love it because they basically get to they see the patient. I usually transfer around 35, 36 weeks. And then they see them like in the office once a week for the last three or four weeks to deliver their baby they get to cash the check and they don't have to do any of the nine months leading up to it. They get out of all that work, but they still get the rewarding and uh, financially rewarding thing at the end, which I, I, I hate it. I love delivering babies. Doing OB was a big part of my practice, but hey, that you've heard me talk about that before. It is what it is. And um, our hospital made that decision for whatever reasons they had to. And, and that's, that's that. But um, it's not all bad. I don't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to deliver babies anymore either, which is nice. But yeah. It's the doctors are all, all the doctors are very cool with it. They, they love it. They don't have any problem with it at all. I just send them all the records and we touch base with them. And, uh, it's actually pretty seamless. It's not too bad.
0: And when you're actually sending records, do you, do you use your EMR to do that? Do you do paper faxes? How do you get the records over?
1: Do it with EMR. Yep. Our, our EMR, um, I just, uh, I, the one thing I still, the only thing I'm a paperless office, but the only thing I still do on paper is the OB flow sheet. Cause you're adding something to it every time they come in and you're writing stuff on there. And the, I like to keep it up to date. That way, if my patient has to travel for some reason, I make them a copy of it because they find themselves in, uh, Northern California on vacation and they go into labor, man, that doctor's going to be mad whenever they show up out of nowhere in labor. But if you at least have a copy of your OB flow sheet, you've got all your labs, you've got everything, you've got blood type. It's all this, it's all there. You know, so I always give them a copy. So I like to do it on paper because that way I can always update it and keep give them an active copy if they need it. But at the end of the pregnancy, and when I transfer them to the, the delivering physician, I just scan that in as a PDF and then that goes onto their chart. And then I use the EMR to fax it to the um the doctor that I'm transferring their care to. It's easy easy as pie.
0: Gotcha. I'm the same way. I actually I, I learned this in residency, but I handwrite out my OB flow sheet on a a card that I recommend mm-hmm. people keep in their wallets. Yep. So I use the yep. the little plastic sleeves that we put the yellow cards for vaccines in. Yep. To house the card because of that exact reason. Like if you are going to drop a baby, you're going to drop a baby, and yeah. <laughs> like you you cannot. I mean, like my son, my three month old came a week early, and had I been, you know, had times been different, had I been de- driving in Monterey or something that as, as doctors who have ever delivered, you know, we understand and appreciate knowing information before Mm -hmm. a a baby comes out.
1: (laughs) I I, When I was working at the hospital, I mean, I did ER all the time for nine years and several times I had patients who, it's one of the reasons I didn't continue. I could have gotten privileges at any of those, at least two of those hospitals and delivered three you know, 30, 40 minutes from here, miles from here. I just chose not to because it's too far. I'm gonna miss deliveries. It's you can't be that far away, in my opinion. I mean, I once missed a delivery in Holton and I the, the patient got there. I checked her in, I did her h HP, everything was fine. She's whatever, four centimeters. She's got some time. I was starving. There's a pizza hut like a half a mile from the hospital. I drove to the pizza hut, I was getting some pizza, my phone rings and the nurses are freaking out. I'm like what are you talking about? She was four centimeters like 30 seconds ago. And I like dropped my pizza, race out the pizza hut, half a mile to the hospital. I missed the delivery. And I was only half a mile away. What's going to happen if I'm 30, 40 miles, right? So I decided not, not going to mess with that. But um, uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I've, numerous times whenever I was working in the ER, patients who were in, for, again, ex- there's, for instance, Soldier, Kansas, who were trying to deliver in Topeka, which is a nearly an hour drive. And they start driving from Soldier, and they kind of go. They don't go through Holden, but they go kind of close to Holden on their way to Topeka. And they're like, "Oh, we're not going to make it." You know, mom's in the back seat. It's happening. It's coming. Oh no, no. And they call the sheriff, and the sheriff calls us and says, "There's a patient on their way from Soldier to Topeka. They're not going to make it for delivery." I remember that very clearly one time. I'm like, I had just barely hung up with the sheriff dispatcher and this guy comes peeling into the ER entrance and like does a handbrake turn right in front of the door and we get his wife out. She's in the middle of a contraction, put her in a wheelchair, wheel her into the first hospital room. We couldn't even get her down the hall to the OB suite. like We just put her in the first room and that contraction stopped. I put on some regular non-sterile gloves that were right there on the wall, got her up in the bed. She took her pants off and we delivered that baby on the next contraction. She hadn't been in the office or in the, in the hospital for more than like, I don't know, two minutes or something. And we had that baby delivered. And I didn't know nothing about this patient other than what she told me. Like I knew her name. That was about it. I know her blood type. I didn't know prenatal anything. And that's, no doctor likes that. That increases the risk so much. You don't want it. And so, yeah, I love that idea. Always give them something to take with them if they have to go somewhere or whatever, especially in a rural area when they're traveling. And sometimes, you know, when you're traveling, it's usually more than 40 miles from home.
0: Absolutely. We've talked about how you're delivering care to members of your practice. Mm -hmm. You also offer care and services to non-members. And what I love on your website is how you clearly have it for, you know, plain as day for people to see, yes, this is the cost for a non-member. And then this is the cost if you were a member of our practice, which is, there's clear differences. They're all
1: free. Yeah. If you're a member, it's free, 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 free. I don't really advertise that stuff for non-members. Like I don't really do, I'm going to call it medical care very much for non-members. I will do procedural care for non-members with the exception of DOT physicals. Um, but like I do a ton of vasectomies for non-members and if someone in town or around here needs a bunch of stitches or has a surgical thing or has a bunch of cosmetic, they just want a bunch of moles or skin tags taken off the kind of stuff that insurance won't cover because it's quote unquote, um, cosmetic and the insurance won't cover it. And, um, I'm like, yeah, and, and yeah, I'll, I mean, I'm not going to do it for free. I'll make some money on it, but I do advertise those things, I guess. But, um, I don't really like doing the, oh, I just want a medical checkup you know, can we do a one-time thing? And there's a couple, I I mean, I will every now and then if I've got the free time because I'll take the money, but what happens inevitably, like I did this one time for a guy and he's like, I'm just, it's no big deal. I just having a little, I just want to get checked up, do some lab. And I'm like, okay, your money's good here. I guess I'll do it. So I did like a full checkup on him for an hour for 150 bucks and some lab work. And long story short, he had bacterial endocarditis he was super sick and he had to be admitted and all of this stuff. And then I ended up having to do all these meds and refills and repeat labs and repeat cultures over and over and over. And I worked for this guy for like two and a half months and all I ever got was 150 bucks. And so I learned my lesson, like don't do medical stuff. But if it's just procedures or a vasectomy or take some skin tags off, I'll do stuff for people and the prices are online. Because if I'm not that busy and I've got the time, I mean, sure. And everybody's another everybody wins situation they get the procedure done and they make a lot, they save a lot of money. I make some money. I get to do something fun, like, cause I like surgical things or whatever. The other thing is while you're cutting skin tags off somebody or whatever it is taking out a thrombosed hemorrhoid, don't fill, fill in the blank. You can talk to them about DPC and how, and you always mention, man, this would have been included if you uh, were a member here and you also get, you know, you got, forget the 32nd elevator speech. You've got a half an hour to, to indoctrinate them into DPC. So that's another reason uh, that I do that, but I don't, I don't advertise a lot of it. I I intended to. When I before I um this is interesting before I started uh, I reached out to the DPC community who just like you with these podcasts are just so awesome at helping other doctors get free and I said hey one of the things I'm thinking about doing is basically making a two tier system where you can be a member or you can do the like a la carte pick a price off of the off of the menu deal and doctors like left and right don't do that don't do that because what happens is nobody will join because they'll just come in periodically and pay 50 bucks for an office visit or whatever. And then what happens is to make the same amount of money, you have to take care of 10 times more people. So then you can't offer all the texting email and all the other stuff because then you wouldn't have time. And um, it's better to just let it grow organically. And so they told me that and it turned out they were right. And I'm glad I took their advice, but I will still, cause it's a small town and I know people and my friends and stuff that, that aren't members that they have insurance and stuff. And so they go to the clinic at the hospital, but they know that I'll save them money or Time or whatever on procedures, they'll come in, and I don't mind that because, like I said, let's say somebody comes in and I do a little surgical thing, I charge them two or three hundred bucks. That's half of what they would pay the hospital. They win; they save three hundred bucks, and I made three hundred dollars for thirty minutes worth of work. Like everybody wins, so it's not it's not that big a deal. But I don't want it to be the medical workup stuff because then you get stuck with follow up and lab and refills. And nope, not doing that.
0: Especially if it's you know your license at the end of the day, and if what happens if. If, uh, you know, somebody is, if somebody is in a situation where they don't have a primary to follow up with later after you start the care, I mean, that's, that's absolutely, you know, dangerous territory.
1: Yep.
0: I want to ask because you are in a rural environment with the pandemic was it at all difficult for you to get supplies because on your website, which, which I loved you, you gave, you know, it's very educational, but you also gave a play-by-play as to, you know, what testing was available and when, Mm -hmm. Um, but did, did you have any issues with, being a rural practice during covid when it comes to getting supplies.
1: Not really. I actually covid didn't affect us much. I never closed a single day. The, the clinic never closed. I, I got covid in November, so I had to I had to quarantine for 10 days. Um but we st- we were still open. Daniel never got it, so he we were st- my nurse got it too. So Daniel was running the place for 10 days. Um but uh, no, in uh, our our health department was really good about sharing they had they had some resources and they were able to get a ton of PPE and so The health department was bringing us masks and face shields and gowns and all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, I was delayed before I could get COVID tests. And I have COVID tests now, but it it took me a while to be able to get those. But that whole time I couldn't get them, the local health department had them and would, would do the tests for people for free as long as they had symptoms. So honestly I I really um covid didn't slow us down or change anything and now I have massive cabinets full of PPE that I'll probably never use more than I can use almost you know but um uh the pandemic's pretty well through here and it came through hard in November now people are getting immunized as well so it's really it's it, it hasn't affected us from the disease standpoint the economic ramifications and fallout from the rampant unnecessary closures unfortunately have caused, uh, wreaked a lot of havoc on my patient population. We've had tons of more mental health issues. We've had patients who can't pay their bill because they got laid off. And th- so there's been all those things, but, uh, no, other than, other than that, it hasn't been a big deal.
0: And what about for those patients affected, especially economically, have you had any patients say, I, I can't continue with your care because of my financial situation?
1: Yeah. One family, I think, um, we had a we got a phone call like that that I think had a layoff situation and they just said we just can't we can't pay and so uh, I think I just gave him a year free or so I didn't want him to leave and I I'm not trying to hurt anybody I'm trying to help people so I said just we'll just we'll write it off for a year we'll you know they, they weren't big utilizers anyway I said you know you'll get a job things will change we'll we'll turn your billing back on next year or something and they were appreciative of that um, but other than that nah we. Just a, a couple of people kind of got behind, and we just, you know, adjusted some bills for a few people and whatever, but nothing, nothing bad. I would say by far the biggest, the biggest fallout for us, there's two. One is the mental health part of it, especially for kids. And um, we've had way too many people who have neglected their routine health care because they're worried about coronavirus and, and exposure and stuff, and they wouldn't come in when they really should have. We really shine during COVID because we're not big, we're not crowded, we don't have to have these crazy, you know, check-in procedures with all kinds of stuff. We would just keep people outside. We'd go outside and see them in the parking lot and put on our PPE or whatever else. And everybody got care. Nobody was denied care uh, or, you know, all these hospitals that were around here were just empty. I mean, people couldn't get appointments, couldn't do nothing. And there was, everybody was getting laid off. The hospitals were, you know, like tumbleweeds going by, crickets chirping and stuff. We were busy and going the whole time.
0: It just, it makes me think about how with you mentioning this family and you extending the the desire to still care for them, even though mm-hmm. financially they're not able to, it just makes you think about how you know you're able to do that. You, you yeah know,
1: oh yeah in the hospital I would have gotten yelled at if I did that. If I said if I wrote no charge on the ticket or told them don't bill them, I'd have got yelled at. Oh that's not fair. You cannot bill them and then bill other people, and you can't you know that's fraud if you don't. Like what are you talking about? Like I. To me, it's it's my care. It's my time. And if I want to deliver it for free, if I want to give it away, then I can because I'm the boss. So
0: <laughs> I love but, it. Yeah, it's it's funny that, you know, it, there's no one that can help you with coding, but there's definitely someone who's looking at if you code too little, <laughs> you know, like if, yeah. you, if you have a cash pay patient who you code a 99291 and yeah. they literally will send you an email the second that that code is. Is, oh, yeah. is run through the system because, you know, your, your note clearly does not reflect a nine nine two one nine one, 191 but um, because you don't care. Well, the, <laughs> you don't yeah. care about codes. You don't care about well, how much the insurance uh, yeah, is going to
1: bill the patient. That's the most, one of the wonderful, there's many wonderful things about direct care, but it's so nice being able to forget all those codes and not have to mess with them. And like when I send people to the hospital for images or someplace where they are going to use insurance for their x-rays or whatever, And the the radiology department, whoever calls, like, oh, we need a code. We need a diagnosis code. I have three words for them. I don't code. I said, the diagnosis is on the sheet that I faxed you, the order sheet. If you need a diagnosis, you have people there. You need a code. You have people there whose job is literally called coder. You should call a person who's a coder and get a code. What I do is I'm a doctor. I make diagnoses. And so here's a diagnosis. You figure it out end of conversation and i don't code i don't do it refuse and it's awesome and they guess what they get a code because they know they're not going to get insurance money without one so they'll figure it out that's that's their job i don't they're not giving me any money to code for them so you know get the person who's getting paid to code have them do it for you drives me nuts that's one of the reasons i'm here
0: and we are definitely glad that you are
1: (laughs) me too (laughs)
0: separate from your DPC you've also served on many boards um, for example the governor's fitness council and the Kansas Academy of Family Physicians and you you talked on this a little bit earlier with regards to you know if somebody comes in you have that 30 minutes visit with them to actually tell them about DPC and how it could be uh, a benefit to them as they're getting a non-member service but as a full scope family medicine doctor and as a as a DPC centric doctor how have you been able to affect change in bigger organizations or the way they look at family practice?
1: That's a good question. Um uh, I was on the Newborn Screening Advisory Council for a long time and um for about 10 years, that's in Topeka. We um you know, helped the, the state figure out what tests to do for newborn screening and things and uh, there's a lot of doctors most of them specialists and they were always very interested in what I was doing as I made the transit because I was on the board for five years before I transitioned into DPC and then I was on for several years uh, five years or so afterwards too so they were always intrigued by it um, uh, the same way many doctors are you talk to them about um, what your day is like now compared to before and they're just you know Whoa, really? Wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. Of course, on the on the Newborn Screening Advisor Council, I was the only family physician. Everybody else was almost all pediatric subspecialists, pediatric endocrinologists and geneticists and all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't they didn't care as much. They were just intrigued by it. But it wasn't something that they were they thought of as, ooh, this could help me or, you know, my patients or something. They all work in big academic medical centers in Kansas City and stuff like that. But I don't I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that um I I was able to do a whole lot of uh, preaching the DPC gospel at those kinds of meetings. I mean, they, no one ever who gets to know me on boards like that, they're never surprised by it because I already stick out. I already don't try. I already don't try to fit in. I already take pride in breaking every position stereotype there is. I don't play golf. I wear jeans and a hoodie to those meetings. Everybody else has got a tie on like, you know, I, you know, so they weren't surprised about it, but they, but they understand, though, that why I do it is all about patient care. It's patient first. And I'm like, I can give my patients an hour now. I'm not rushed. I can really dig into the cases and like, God forbid, act like a doctor, you know, figure stuff out instead of just refer everything off to someone else to do. Um, do you want something done right? You got to do it yourself. Right. And that's kind of how I push it. And they, they get that. But um, I don't think, I don't know. I, I can't say that those, those kinds of councils or being on those has made a, I don't think it's been something that I've really made a lot of dpc disciples out of them necessarily because i'm not on the newborn council anymore and the or the fitness council anymore and so um i've been putting more m- my volunteer time into the direct primary care alliance and that's different that's a place where we are going our main goal is just to serve doctors trying to get free and who want to help it's it's all about patient care but we you got to help the doctors if they're going to help the patients and so that's what we're doing and that's a very rewarding place to be for sure
0: Vance, with you mentioning the DPC Alliance, especially for those people who might be, you know, very new to the space, a, a medical student or a, a resident who is considering doing DPC after residency, what is the DPC Alliance and what is the value that it brings to DPC doctors?
1: Yeah, so it's it's got different value for different people. I mean, if you're a if you're a resident or if you're a physician who wants to who's considering looking at direct care that's really where its biggest benefit is is because we just have all these people who just want to help others get free and and serve patients in the right way. Uh, we have tons of resources that would have been invaluable whenever I was going into it, like whether it's example, contracts, legal forms, how do you deal with pharmacy stuff? How do you deal with lab stuff? I mean, every, all that, all those kinds of resources are really nice and, um, as far as if it were for residents, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little mixed on how to help residents because um, some part of it, of DPC, is understanding why we do it. And if you never practiced on the inside, you never really felt the pain that pushed us into direct care. Now, a lot of people learn from watching other people's pain. Like You don't have to put your hand on a hot stove to decide not to put your hand on a hot stove. You can watch somebody else do it and be like, that looks like it really hurt. I think I I'll not do that. And so the smarter residents are seeing doctors on the inside that are being changed by the, by the job and who are like burning out. And they're like, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so they just go into direct care, which makes sense. The downside of it is once they're in direct care, you're still a doctor. You still have to answer phone calls and texts and emails 24 hours a day. And you're going to be inconvenienced and you're not going to be Like you're a doctor. This is what you signed up for. Like it's not an easy life, even in direct care, which some people weirdly think it is. Like somehow this is like this magical rainbows and clouds and glitter and unicorns, like sparkly fun palace. I don't know. It's still hard sometimes. And I I feel like sometimes the people that are the most negative about their experience of direct care are the ones who never worked on the inside. And so they have a different relative perspective of it. Whereas people who were just treated like crap by administrators and stuff for a long time. Man, they there there's it doesn't our worst day in direct care is better than our best day on the inside. So, so with residents, sometimes if I if I can't tell where they are on that, if they don't really recognize the pain that the, those of us on the inside felt. Sometimes I'm like, you should go work on the inside for a while, make some money, pay off your bills, put it in the bank because if you start burning out, you start realizing like the coding sucks and all these other things. Then you're gonna want to do DPC, and then you've got some money to use to live off of while you start your business. As opposed to just starting, if I, if they get it, then I say do it right out of the gate. And the DPCA is there to help them either way. Um, I don't think our, our goal is to educate residents and students on how much life on the inside sucks necessarily as much. It's not a negative thing. It's We're here to be positive. Here's what we can do to serve patients and stuff. But um, when I go talk to medical students and things like that... Um, I mean, inevitably, that comes up. I just you, you have to talk about what it was like. I mean, because that's the first question I've asked is why. You just said that earlier. What's, everybody has their why. Like, well, why? And I have to explain to them what it was like not getting home before midnight, 1 o'clock, almost every night, and never seeing my kids. And to this day, my daughter, who's going to be my partner here at the office, she wants to be a doctor. Her 12th birthday was a couple of days ago, and she can't wait to be a doctor. She I taught a suturing clinic uh, online on, on Zoom at the medical school a few days ago. And she was my camera person. She sat here with the little camera. And then in between, she sat down with my little tools that I had out for my examples. And on my little, my little rubber thing here, she was actually sewing. She's pretty good. She's actually got some suturing skills and she's only 12. But um, my little girl, I don't remember her being a baby. I don't remember it. I mean, I'm sure she was because most humans start out that way. And then eventually they can talk and walk and they don't poop their pants and things like that. Don't remember it. I assume she was a baby but it was, it was just over and I was never there. And I still feel sad and, and guilty about that. Um, and those are the kinds of stories I tell students. And those are where the, the Alliance can come in and help people. But but if if that doesn't resonate, then you may just have to experience it. And then the Alliance is there. Uh, what, what other benefits of the Alliance are for people who already established DPC practices are mostly financial in nature. And that is that um, the alliance has done a great job of making all kinds of deals with vendors, so that you get deals on things. You get a discount off Rubicon MD uh, e consoles You can get discounts on supplies and group purchasing organizations things, and uh, I can't even tell you all of them. But there's a lot. There's a lot of those out there um, that are that make it worthwhile um, for a lot of people. Another benefit of the Direct Primary Care Alliance, of course, is with those financial incentives when that you save money on things like the Rubicon discount and the purchasing discounts. That the idea is in the end, you you actually save more than you would have spent on those things. So the, the Alliance membership should, to some degree, pay for itself for most people that are running a practice. And if you're starting out or you're brand new and you don't need all those things yet, or maybe you're just in residency and you're trying to figure it out, or you're you're opening your practice, but you don't have any income yet and you don't have the, the money for the m- membership, they do have some programs you can sign up for to get some, some help or some relief or they can forgive it for some time. It's not a big expense, and it's it's. I think it's half what I used to pay for my AFP membership and state membership.
0: I want to ask about your pricing, because your pricing is very reasonable. I mean, $10 for a kid. How did you develop your pricing, and has it changed over time?
1: So I developed my pricing the way that all of us teach DPC docs and training to do, which is you figure out how much money you want to make, figure out how many patients you can take care of, divide, get the number per month, whatever. Um, I also got it largely by I wasn't the first DPC doctor by any means, so there were uh, quite a few before me. Not a lot, I mean, I'm a relatively earlier doctor, but there. Were, so I just went on their websites and saw what everybody else was doing. But then I weighed that against what I thought I could get in Holton, Kansas, because this is rural Kansas where a dollar goes a lot further, and the, the amount of money that you would pay for things here is a lot less than what you pay for it in Portland. So you have to you know adjust that. But uh, I did it that way, and. Um, my prices are, you can see them on my website. They're pretty standard. They're a little lower than average, obviously. But again, I'm in a lower socioeconomic area, and I'm also in a rural area. So um, that was the first part of your question. The second question is, uh, have they changed? And the answer is no. I've been open uh, for five years, going on six, and my prices have not changed uh, one bit. Not, not on my monthly fees. I have increased a couple of the procedure expenses a little bit, but not appreciably. And uh, those were just for non-members anyway. But for membership pricing, I have not changed. I I experimented. Maybe wrong word. I I thought about maybe making a couple of changes when we moved to the new clinic because I had this new facility that cost me a couple of bucks. And I'm like, maybe we could make a little money, but I I don't know. Then COVID happened and everyone's losing their jobs and nobody can go to work and blah, blah, blah. And I decided this was a bad time to increase my prices. So I, I haven't made a change yet. I. I still think I need to. I think I'm too cheap for kids because we have a ton of families with millions of kids. Ten bucks a kid is killing me. I probably need to go up on pediatric rates a little. That that may be one change I make. I also do this thing. I was one of the first, if not the first, to do the discounted rate for people in their 20s. So where most people, when they become an adult around 19 or whatever, they go up to the 50 bucks a month or 40 or whatever it is. Um, I just... I thought to my mind about all these young families that are, you know, young married couples in their early twenties with a kid or two and they're blue collar workers. They don't have a whole lot of income. I don't think if I, if I put myself in their shoes and I said, is it worth it for me to pay 50 bucks for me, 50 bucks for my spouse and 10 bucks each for my two kids. And we're pretty healthy and we have some kind of insurance through work. I wouldn't pay that, but I think I might do 30. And so because of that concept, I came up with that, just that idea, I made it for, uh, from 19 to 30, it's only 30 bucks. Uh, so that price range was unique to me. And I haven't changed that. And that paid off because I've got all these young families, tons of healthy young families where, uh, a couple and one or two kids is less than hundred bucks a month and they're healthy. So I don't see them that often anyways. It's not like it's costing me much money. And I've built up this very large young practice, which will get older with me and their price will go up as they get older. And that, I think I really, I think that was a good call doing that. And I probably will keep that price the same too. If I if I make an adjustment, it'll probably be on the kids, just five or 10 bucks a month. I don't know. We'll see. But I, right now, I'm not planning on it anytime soon. As gas okay. keeps going up, I won't be able to anyway, because everybody's going to be too busy spending all their money at the gas station.
0: It also is strategically smart in that you're not going to have a Medicare age population only, that you're building that longevity into your clinic. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I actually anticipated having a lot of older folks because when I was on the inside, I had a ton of Medicare patients and almost none of them followed me. I mean, I had a few and I have quite a few Medicare patients now, but not like I had back then. I mean, back then, seven out of 10 of my visits were people in their 80s or something or 70s or whatever. And tons of those people didn't follow me. And I, but I anticipated that they would because I had such good relationships with them. And I did not expect all these young families, these young 22, 23 year olds with kids I, I did not expect it because you know how the the mantra is that, you know, young people, these millennials or whatever, all these young people, they're all entitled. and They won't spend money on anything. They think that they have every world coming to them for free. If that's true, it is not true. in hold these patients, these you know early 20s uh, working parents with kids, man, they they want to, to have a skin in the game and they are they absolutely get the value. And it's—I I would say—they are quite uh, firmly the cornerstone of this practice's um, demographic—is these just young families? And like, and I didn't plan it that way. I didn't care to. That wasn't my plan. I was having lots of young families and kids. It just worked out that way. And it's a great thing because it's solid. It'll age with me. The biggest problem is going to be when all the kids start leaving for college and I lose all these, lose all the kids someday. But no, it's good. I, I like it. It's a good practice.
0: And hopefully, those those kids will, you know know you and love you so much that they can at least maintain some kind of college student membership. Be surprised you can... how many
1: I do. I have a yeah. lot. And, and a lot of times if they're still in college and their parents are still members and paying and I'll just, I'll keep the kids 10 bucks a month while they're gone to school. Cause honestly, I don't hear about, ba- hear from them very often anyway. And I, if I, if I said, nope, you got to pay 30, they'd probably just quit. So, I might as well just say, yeah, stay on at 10 bucks a month. And then I'll see them when they're home for Christmas break, maybe once in the summer, and fill a prescription or two for them. And yeah, 120 bucks a year, it's worth it.
0: Absolutely. You and especially Dr. Nick Thompson have talked multiple times about the value that you bring to your patients by doing procedures. Yeah. So, do you have any tech or tools specifically that you use and love, especially to someone who is in a rural setting or who's wanting to do procedural medicine?
1: Yeah. Um, for procedural stuff, if you do a lot of procedures, uh, I, like you said, if you have tools that you love, like everybody, everybody does, I guess. I, I, I love my high for Cater. I, I did buy, um, a hyfercator. I got a used one, um, actually from California on eBay. And, uh, I think they wanted, I think they wanted 400 for it and I offered them 350 and they took the offer. And so that I use a lot. I like it. Um, What else? Beyond that, I I guess, and I've talked about some of this and Nick and my presentations we've done for the summit on scope expansion. um, We talk about how you can get a lot of cheap tools on eBay or or whatever, which is true. And, and, you know, they cost you 10 cents a piece for some little iris scissors or forceps and if they rust or whatever, throw them away, you're out nothing. But there are some that you want to get the good ones uh, for quality uh, depending on what it is. And a good example is I do a lot of vasectomies and uh, the vast clamp and the dissecting forceps you use them so often and they go through the autoclave so often that you really you really got to spend the money on the good ones for that. So I do I do like my uh, brand name uh, tools on those, for just for those two tools, but seriously, for all the other tools I just get the cheap stuff in 10 packs on eBay for nothing. The hypercater I use a lot. I've got really nice exam lights. I like having good lighting. Part of that's getting old and having to need glasses and stuff. Good lighting is is imperative and unfortunately very expensive. I was able to get really awesome surgery lights for free but you, this isn't a podcast interview to talk about all my bantanomics strategies to get cheap and free stuff that's a whole nother lecture but uh, i got uh ten thousand dollars worth of surgery lights for free so good light good lighting is good uh i don't i don't think i have any other specifics oh i, I guess i have another one um it costs a little more money but i'm a big fan of waterproof casting materials so if you do a lot of a lot of ortho and i do um Waterproof casts for kids are worth their weight in gold, and I would say I, I haven't done the exact math, but it's approximately if you you buy the, the waterproof stuff that I use. I use the Delta Dry stockinette and uh, Ace or and a uh, soft roll that goes underneath. You can use regular casting fiberglass, but you have to buy the the Delta Dry brand. Or there's other brands too, but the one I think Delta Dry is the best. Anyway, um, they're expensive. I would say probably. It's worth about 30 retail or what I pay is probably somewhere in the 30, maybe $30 or maybe as much as 40 per cast for those materials compared to like the cotton soft roll, which is like 30 cents or something. So if I put a cast on a patient and they just want the regular one, they don't care about waterproof. I don't charge for it. It's just included with their membership. But if they want a waterproof cast, which anybody who's ever had a kid who's in a cast should want. It's, it's superior in every way. Uh, they don't get stinky. You can shower. Your, your summer doesn't get... Kids always break their arm at the beginning of summer, of course, in the springtime when they're playing on the monkey bars or something and they break that arm and then it screws up their summer because they can't swim the whole summer. All of that goes away with waterproof casts and they're great. Uh, I, so what I do is I, I charge my patients. I, I, I'm not positive. I have to look, but I think I charge them 45 or 50 bucks for a waterproof cast as opposed to a free regular cast but any parent who's had it it personally, I, my son right now, my, my 13 year old, he has a cast on his arm that I put on two days ago. He broke his arm snowboarding and, um, it's his second cast I put on him and he loves the waterproof stuff. So, uh, that's another one I like. I like waterproof casting, but it costs a little more. So I charge extra for it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any others, I don't think I have any answers to that question as far as specific things in the for procedures that are useful in rural. Oh, I, I think, I think I have one. Um, I bought a Cardia. Uh, I, I don't remember which model it is. It's a six lead Cardia. It's a little thing. It's about the size of a stick of gum. Um, and you it syncs to a smartphone and you can do a six lead EKG with it. Real easy. You just set it on your knee and put two fingers on each side. Um, I used to always have to do uh, Holters whenever I had a person who had symptoms suggestive of like paroxysmal AFib or something. And I, I, can get hold, I have a Holter set up that I can do for like 60 bucks. But I, I think I paid 150 for the Cardia. I rent it to my patients for 15 bucks. And when they have the palpitations or they're feeling it, they can get that thing out, turn on their phone. And then five minutes later, they're emailing me a PDF of their EKG. And I'm like, yep, you got AFib. I knew it, you know, and it costs them 15 bucks. I love that thing. I don't know how that makes me. I don't think that's particularly specific to rural. You can pull that off and save people the same money regardless of where you are. But I li- I really like that thing. That thing's been paying off. Um, a good 12-lead EKG, definitely. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think that's about it. I can't think of anything specific. It's certainly nothing that's because of rural. If anything, I have a lot of farmers. We're a very agricultural area and farming is probably the most dangerous job in the United States. And those guys getting hurt and getting stitches and things all the time. And so having lots of surgical equipment and casting materials and all that stuff is is definitely worth worth doing. Uh, that's all that's off the top of my head, at least.
0: When you were talking about if people have kids and they, they have the the water tainted cast. I I just think of that from the doctor's perspective and how the scent is when they come in. Uh, and, oh, man. In the
1: inside one time, I had a kid, I had to put a cast on him four times because he kept getting it wet and it was, you know, his skin was breaking down. We'd have to cut it off, put another one on. I did I, I, Four times. And I was like, man, I wish I could do a waterproof cast with a kid.
0: That's awesome. And I, I really love the idea about renting out the Cardia the because Cardia. I think that yeah. you're right. It's not just pertaining to rural doctors, because I think about how I have to get prior auths for culture monitors for my patients who, you know, like I have this guy who's probably 32, 33, and he had palpitations, scared him to death because of family history of palpitations, right. never had any cardiac history himself. But um, the, the peace of mind that you could get just from Renting a Cardia from your doctor, I think that's a great idea.
1: Yeah. And it's 15. I charged 15 bucks. I came up with that because it cost me 150. And I said, well, we rented out 10 times. We paid for it. That's not a big deal. And I actually have a guy who has it right now. And the first person I gave it to, uh, I was pretty sure she had AFib, but I never could catch it on a 12 lead. And even if you put a Holter on her, you may not catch it. And then she's out 60 bucks. And yeah, she went home. And about a week later, she had She felt it. She Got me an EKG and it was an easy deal. And so, that thing's cool. I, that thing, that's amazing to me. The technology of that thing is so neat. And uh, like you said, it's and honestly, if money was no object, and you know, I could I could rent it out, let people borrow it for free. But I figured I can recoup my investment, and for fifteen bucks, that's a, that's a. I mean, what do you think on the inside? What do you think that the uh, Holter people are charging the insurance company of your patients for Holter? I mean, like probably upwards of $500, I would think.
0: If you can get an ear clean for 120 I think that you're, you know, you're <laughs> at least going to pay that much for a holder.
1: Oh my gosh. Yes. A lot more, a lot more.
0: Looking back on your years and how your practices has changed and how you've built and moved into your new building. What, if anything, would you have changed?
1: Oh, really not much. I. It has been a smooth, again, nothing's smooth. Nothing's easy. We're still doctors. Things are hard the job is not always easy. It's not always hard. I built my own clinic that I'm in right now, That took me 15 months. So during the time I was doing construction, cause I do most of my own work, it was like, I was working two full-time jobs, you know, so I would work in the clinic all day and then come out here and work all night and all weekend and stuff. But a, I like doing that. It's therapeutic for me anyway. B I never could have afforded this clinic. If without a massive loan, if I didn't do the work myself, C it keeps me out of trouble because I'm here building instead of doing something else. Um, I don't think I would have changed doing that because I couldn't have done what I did as soon as I did it without either doing the work myself or going into debt. Um, there's there's very little I think that I would have changed. Um, I might have, as far as running a DPC, the kinds of things that I did with procedural stuff and and uh, the pharmacy and the lab, I did it all in a way that built a value proposition that made patients want to join. So I I don't know. I, I I did it the right way, but I've always been led by. This entire thing from the day one, it's, it's, a, they always call it a leap of faith. Cause that's what it is. I mean, for a while, you're not making any money and you know, you don't know if it's going to work. You're just, it's kind of like field of dreams. If I build it, they will come. You just have to sort of, you have this, this conviction, this faith that it will work. So I've always, I just, this whole thing has been a spiritual thing for me. I'm like, it's, I, am pretty sure it's what I'm supposed to do. So I just do it and it keeps working. And that's why I, I don't have many, I don't have a good answer to that question because everything I've done, I've been glad I did it because it all worked out. Um, so I don't think I don't think I would do things differently. Um, I mean, I might have done like a little bit. Like I spent a lot of money, a fair amount of money, not a whole lot, but early in the early years before I filled my practice, I spent some money on newspaper advertisements, which I think were was wasted money. No one reads a newspaper anymore. Probably would have done more online or Facebook or social media or radio. I probably would have done radio. Honestly, uh, that's one thing I would have do differently. I would definitely do radio. I even made some radio commercials and made some funny ads and stuff, and I never ended up paying to put them on on the air. Um, And if I had, I probably would have filled a little sooner. But here's the other thing. During that first two years when I was filling up, I think this is important to recognize for doctors who are coming from the inside who've been really abused for a few years. That first year or two, you really do need to heal. And you can't just heal in a couple of weeks. You need a kind of a year to just breathe and get on a bicycle and go for a ride, get some fresh air. It's not an overnight healing process after that amount of abuse for that amount of time. And even if I, I could have grown faster if I did radio ads and stuff, but I'm not sure I would have wanted to because I would have just traded one stress for another. Instead, I had a couple of years where business was relatively slow. And so I was able to make enough money to keep the doors open. But at the same time, I was riding my bike a lot and I was getting healthy spiritually, you know, mentally, uh, physically, everything and then i was kind of refreshed after a year or two to just kind of re-combobulate and then i got busier again so if i wanted to grow faster i would have advertised a little different i guess but that i'm but the way i did it was the right way for me you know what i'm saying
0: i love that because you know it goes back to the idea that if you've seen one dpc you've seen one dpc
1: yeah yeah oh yeah
0: and you know as a mom with a 3 month old and a 3 year old i can see that being so appealing just mm-hmm. the idea that it's okay to take a year or two or whatever you need yeah. to heal because it is yeah. like you're saying, it's not you, <laughs> unless you've lived it, you don't appreciate what the the, the fee for service insurance driven world can do to your soul. It's Yeah.
1: There's a reason that physician suicide rates are 400% higher than their age matched counterparts. That's for sure
0: you've touched on with pricing, how you incorporated a discount for the people before they turn 31. But um, Mm -hmm. are there any other strategies that you have now that allow you to be successful in the
1: future? As far as pricing strategies? I I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's easy. Like I said, when you start young people cheaper, then they they get to feeling where they, they understand the value. And then they, when the price goes up, they stay with you and stuff. So I guess that's one. Um, the other thing that the, – but the big thing that, that helps me – that gives me that future um, – that makes this future-proof, that makes this seem like it's not going to have any potential to slow down, it'll continue to succeed, is the same thing that makes it succeed in the beginning and every day. And that is treat others the way you want to be treated. I mean, if you just keep being nice to people and offering them the best care you can uh, without letting them walk on you, of course, but still just being there, answering those texts, answering those phone calls, being reliable and being loving and giving them plenty of time and making sure they feel heard and listened to, you can't fail. I mean, you treat people well, you just can't go wrong. And they'll tell their friends and you're future proof right there. I mean, here's... Here's the other thing that makes us future proof. As long as we keep doing way, way better job than the system, which really, really sucks, you, you're just going to do fine because people are going to want to get out of that and they're going to want a better option. As long as we have that option available, it's a weird thing to say, is it? But we're just capitalizing on the failure of our success is partly due to someone else's failure, and so we're there to we're there to, as Sir Mix A Lot would say, pull up quick to retrieve them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That, that is my that is my favorite DPC quote now officially. Oh my goodness, I love that you just quoted Sir Mix a Lot. Heck yeah! Oh, so many memories singing to that song. And in, in yep. the we had this uh this little area with two sinks right before the the toilet and shower part of our our, our dorm in the in, in college, and we we would sing with our brushes to Sir Mix a Lot. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. Yep. Oh my god. Um, So, Vance, are there any resources that you would recommend to others that you haven't mentioned already, especially when it comes to increasing scope of practice?
1: Yeah, um, I I don't rely on it real heavily, but enough that's probably worth the money, Rubicon MD subscription. I will rely on specialists to, to walk me through things sometimes if I do something that's a little outside of my comfort zone, surgically or whatever, but that's not a huge one. But same thing for medically, I may have a really complicated. Like I had a 16 year old with crazy seizure disorders. He had a grand mal seizure in my office and, and they didn't have any, they were, it's a family from Guatemala with no insurance. They don't, they're not citizens They, you know, they had their doors were shut on them communication wise everywhere. And using uh, the resource of a Rubicon uh, specialist and epileptologist, we were able to get a kid seizures under control, because I don't know that I would have been good enough. I don't have a ton of experience with that. So that's a really good resource, even though it's not cheap. Um, books I use a lot. Probably the most thing for my buck of any book I use is uh, fracture management and primary care. That's the book written by Ife and Hatch. It's a good book. I actually use it so much I wore my first copy completely out. The spine fell off and the index got lost and I had to buy another copy. It's a new edition anyway. I use that one a lot. I use um, Uh, I have two derm atlases. I like dermatology atlases. They're faster than online usually. And so I use the Fitzpatrick book and I use the Habif book a lot. So derm atlases, fracture management for primary care. Let me roll my chair around my desk and look at my bookshelf. I also use, I mean, I've got a lot more books. Oh, um, obviously Finneger and Fowler's procedures for primary care. I use that one a lot. Um, Dr. Finneger autographed my copy, which is cool. Let me see, Uh, I use office gynecology some, um, oh, the other one, probably this is the book I use probably more than any other book actually, is uh, the Sports Medicine Patient Advisor. So that book is in second, at least second edition. Um, It's fantastic. It's got pages for just about every routine, everyday musculoskeletal injury, and it has kind of an FAQ, and then it has uh, the physical therapy exercises you do to rehab from that injury. So you just, I actually have photocopied the entire book into PDF form. And so I have a PDF for every single one. I just print out, print out a handout and give it to them or email it to them. And um, then it saves them having to go to physical therapy. Usually Uh, sports medicine, uh, patient advisor, I think it's called one more time. Uh, Sports medicine, patient advisor, and it's not all sports medicine. It has low back pain and other kinds of things, man. I use those handouts almost every day. So that's another really good one. Um, Those are my the, the ones I use the most, I would, I would say everything else. I've got a lot of other good books, but they're all out of date the minute they come off the printing press. So I, I rely on, on up to date. I'm on up to date for probably an hour a day, you know? So that's the other one.
0: In terms of resources, if people would like to ask you about further resources or reach out to you, what is the best way of reaching out to you after this podcast?
1: Uh, yeah, anybody, please email me, uh, my, my email address at work is doc at holtondirectcare.com. Uh, that's H-O-L-T-O-N, holtondirectcare.com. You can email me there um, and you can find my website with lots of information on it. My email is on there too at, at um, holtondirectcare.com. And uh, there's also some video content that's probably linked on the Holton direct care website for uh, talks I've given at the DPC summits and, and things like that as well. But yeah, I love helping people who are interested in direct primary care, whether it's a patient looking for a doctor or a doctor looking for some freedom or whatever. Uh, And I'm always just an email away. Always, always love helping people. So we signed up for is to help people, right?
0: Absolutely. That's That's
1: our goal in life.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Lassie, for joining us today.
1: Oh, my goodness. It was my pleasure. Are you kidding me? I was really, I was honored and humbled to even be asked to come on your podcast. I love your podcast
0: next week look forward to hearing from Dr. Janet Aribas of Baha'i Medical if you like what you heard today please leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts tell your friends too for more information on this episode and much more please visit mydpcstory.com also for the latest in DPC news check out dpcnews.com until next week this is Marielle Conception Thank you.